Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoyed the show. Hello, this is Leszek Jaszczewski and welcome after a short summer break to Liberal Europe. We're going to discuss Titanwende and German foreign and security policy. And there is not a better guest than Nicole Koenig to discuss it with me today, ahead of policy at the Munich Security Conference. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Leszek. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that we are having this conversation because um, a Zeitenwende, which can be translated as turning point, is also the, the main issue we are going to discuss at the Freedom Games uh, in Wuj uh, in uh, about six weeks' time. Of course, it's not going to be all about Germany, but about turning point in general. And I also think that Zeitenwende can be understood in this way. So it's not just regarding the German developments, but also the way that the world changes so, Nicole, why don't you start with explaining to everyone what really is Zeitenwende and how it changed German policy? Yeah, uh, thanks, Leszek. Uh, I think the first thing to say is that Zeitenwende actually describes the turning point in global politics rather than, than the German policy itself. So it goes back to the speech of Chancellor Scholz, which he gave in front of the Bundestag um, only three days after the start um, of the invasion on the 27th of February. Uh, 2022, where he said what we are seeing right now with the Russian invasion is a Zeitenwende, so is a turning point. Uh, and this turning point, this Zeitenwende, also requires a change uh, of thinking and a change of acting in German foreign and security policy. And, and what uh, he explained then as part of this change is, can be seen as quite a revolution, um, if, if you know German uh, foreign policy a bit, because um, we could see a shift on, on two key uh, guiding principles um, that, that have been really guiding German foreign policy for decades in the past. The first one uh, is this idea and this positive view of economic interdependence, um, this idea of Wandel durch Handel, uh, or in English, change through trade. Um, and the idea here is that through economic interdependence, uh, there would be uh, some kind of liberalization, whether this is towards Russia or whether this is towards China or other countries. And we saw, of course, this policy has failed. Uh, and I think the biggest change in this respect that we could see right after the invasion uh, was the freezing um, of the Nord Stream pipeline. And the second a key principle um, that was in a way broken um, was uh, Germany's very long-standing culture of military restraint, which uh, you know, you know that has historical roots, uh, and here um, in particular, what we saw um, is a break with the principle not to send uh, weapons to conflict zones, which again had been a leitmotif also of German security policy in the past decades. And we saw that uh, after a lot of debate, also um, before the invasion. Uh, that finally Germany decided to, to also send weapons to Ukraine. Uh, and in fact, nowadays, it's uh, the leading country in Europe in terms of military assistance to Ukraine. And on the other hand, also a key topic for debate always in Germany were the 2% um, target of, of NATO, of defense spending. And also this was a um, very central element of, of Scholz's speech. Uh, that was the promise um, to spend 2% of GDP um, annually on defense from now on. Um, this 
promise was not entirely kept so far, but what also happened at that time is that Germany decided to establish a special fund for defense, a hundred billion strong uh, special fund for defense in order to actually fulfill this promise. And we will probably see it fulfilled um, in the in the years to come, or at least in the two or three years to come. I think it's a, it's a very nutshell, uh, a very good explanation. What's the impression? You, you mentioned that Germany now is the biggest European donor also of military aid to Ukraine. The, the impression was in the modern the last year, then this chancellor was sort of lagging behind uh, the, the, the other states all had to be pushed to, to make these commitments. It was usually with everything from lepers to, to other sorts of weapons. It was an impression that first it has to be persuaded, perhaps Americans has to make the first move. And then uh, Germany was ready to, to donate the, the equipment to Ukraine. Uh, why do you think this sort of this approach was uh, implemented instead of, let's say, the once the decision was made with Saiten vendor and Germany in the end uh, decided to donate that much uh, to Ukraine? I think if it was the other way around, less perhaps commitments, but over delivery, I think this impression that Germany is not supporting Ukraine as it should won't be present. And now Germany is criticized much more than, let's say, France, which is doing much less than, than Germany. Why do you think, is it because of the strategic culture of the past or or do you think that there was sort of um, different points of view inside, inside the coalition? Uh, why such an approach? Well, you're of course right. I mean, I think when, when we heard the speech, even here in Berlin, uh, we were, many of us were actually surprised uh, by, by the, the strong narrative, the strong promises and announcements. But what you saw then in the months following the speech is actually quite a lot of criticism um, that Germany is actually not keeping these promises, that it's sluggish. Um, and, and actually, you know, it took really a while um, to move from the announcements to practice. It, for example, took um, two months for the Bundestag to determine that this announcement to send weapons would also include heavy weapons. We had a very long debate here on, on what, what are actually heavy weapons and what does that mean. Then we, of course, had a very long debate uh, on whether Germany should be sending the Leopard tanks or main battle tanks to Ukraine. Um, there was this impression that Germany was drawing red lines and then later actually tearing them down due to perhaps pressure from, from external partners or internal uh, internally from coalition partners. I think several reasons um, for that. I think the key reason is that there was a true fear um, of escalation. And this is one thing that the chancellor always mentioned in his speeches is always two things. She said, on the one hand, we really need to support Ukraine uh, and to, to make it resilient, to allow it to defend itself and to also thereby defend the rules-based order um, against, uh, against an unjustified attack. But on the other hand, we also have to hedge against uh, escalation, against you know, the nuclear threats that we are seeing uh, from Moscow. Uh, and, and what he always mentioned is also he, he directly addressed the German population and said, I, I see your concerns. I see that you, uh, that you are, are afraid that this escalation might come. This is why we need to move very thoughtfully, very gradually. Uh, and this is, of course, something that, again, frustrated not only external partners, uh, which, you know, also also American partners, which behind closed doors were saying, well, we, you know, Germans, we have to carry them over each next step. 
and this is not we would not what we would expect uh, in terms of, of leadership. But I think again the key fear was, and you could see that also a little bit in, in public opinion polls, and that where you could see the populations also divided um, when when it came to to heavy weapons. Perhaps you can um, you can describe what what sort of strategy the currently the the chancellor. Pursues uh, towards the war in Ukraine because he famously said it on several occasions that Russia cannot win, Ukraine cannot lose. It's not like a direct uh, support for Ukrainian victory, uh, and he was under criticism from many members of the coalition government. Why is he so hesitant to say that Ukraine needs to win this war? Is it the fear of escalation? Yes, I think essentially it's the fear of escalation. Again, we here have different representatives in the German debate. For example, um, at the Munich Security Conference earlier this year, we had a clear message from the then new German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius, who actually said that uh, Ukraine must win this war. But I think the hesitancy is really also because there are different interpretations and opinions of what actually this victory means um, and what defeat means. And I think this also explains the hesitancy together with this fear of escalation. And you ask about the strategy, and I think goes back to a point that I made earlier. I think the, the strategy um, is to, on the one hand, um, really support Ukraine for as long as possible, which is the phrase um, that a German chancellor uses, um, and that, you know, to provide the military, the economic, the financial support um, to allow Ukraine to defend itself and to also put it into a better um, position once there is a ceasefire, once there is a negotiation. But at the same time, and this is what you know is always mentioned with that, is to prevent the further escalation, to prevent nuclear escalation, and to prevent NATO uh, being dragged into the conflict. And you could see this dual approach also at the NATO summit in Vilnius, where on the one hand you had no clear invitation um, or no clear concrete invitation uh, for Ukraine to join, join NATO, but at the same time still uh, the declaration of the G7 to provide security, long-term security commitments. We've seen that um, despite some skepticism that perhaps uh, the SPD might be, let's say, more American skeptic because of the historical reasons, you know, 1980s and 1960s, uh, when this relationship was sometimes uh, different on the left and on the right. Uh, some protests against the, sh uh, the short-range missiles in the 80s. It seems that actually Scholz is very much following uh, Biden um, to the extent that I think it, it could be complicated even for Americans at some, at some point. I was wondering, uh, from the German perspective, does it mean that the, all the talk about strategic autonomy is gone? Is it the concept of the past or is it just this particular war in which Americans in the, are in the driving seat um, shows that, um, okay, NATO is not gone, but it is just because of the, of the Biden and perhaps in five, ten years time, we have to come back to strategic autonomy. What, what, sort, what sort of point of view do you have on this? Uh, on, on the strategic autonomy after the war in Ukraine from German perspective? Well, I think strategic autonomy has never been a very German concept. It has been much more driven uh, by the French, especially by President Macron. In Germany, what uh, politicians usually preferred um, is the notion of strategic sovereignty. 
uh, because it's considered less toxic. Autonomy always implies an autonomy from, and you know, in, in the area of defense, it's usually considered to be autonomy from the U.S. And so in German, um, in the German discourse, we hear much more about strategic sovereignty. You can see this term also in the coalition treaty. Uh, but to be quite honest, since the start um, of, of the Russian war against Ukraine, we haven't really heard very much uh, even about strategic sovereignty uh, here in the German debate. And the reason is that Germans are very much aware how uh, dependent uh, we still are as Europeans uh, on the support of the US, whether it's uh, about the nuclear umbrella whether it's about their role in NATO or whether it's about also their significant military assistance to Ukraine. I mean, we shouldn't forget that uh, the Americans and uh, the American military assistance to Ukraine is around one third higher than that of the whole EU combined. And so this is the reason why if we would now start debating uh, European strategic sovereignty uh, ger from a German perspective, you know, uh, maybe we're a bit afraid of suggesting any kind of decoupling at a time when, when unity in the transatlantic relationship is most needed. Um, I think that's, that's why we haven't really heard much about this, um, least uh, about strategic autonomy. And also, even if you look at the new national security strategy, uh, which was just published um, at the beginning of the summer, you have to look quite hard for this notion of strategic sovereignty. I think I only found it once and only in sort of in a, in a small corner. So it's not very prominent. What you see much more um, traditionally in the German debate, but also very much in the national security strategy is this idea of the European pillar of NATO. And then you need to strengthen the European pillar of NATO. And this is basically the more dominant concept at the moment. Whether this will stay this way, uh, I think very much depends on, on the outcome of the US presidential election next year. Um, you mentioned a new security strategy. What's, what's changed? What's new? What's important in, the, in this document? Well, I think um, the first, this national security strategy is the, the first national security strategy that we have. So I think that's, that's already worth mentioning. It's also been the result of a very comprehensive uh, negotiation between different ministries, which is important because uh, the theme of the, and the title of the strategy is integrated um, security. And one of the things, of course, that is very prominent is that it uh, takes stock of uh, everything that happened since the Zeitenwende and notably also clearly describes uh, Russia as a key threat, um, which, which you know, wouldn't have happened before. Uh, but the other element that is quite interesting from my point of view and also from this idea of integrated security is that we have a real shift in terms of the understanding um, of economic security. Um, so, you know, it's much more, before we always had this notion, you know, there's a division, there's foreign policy, and then there's economic issues. And Nord Stream 2, for example, was, you know, the, the coalition partners kept repeating them, well, this is an economic issue. It's not a geopolitical issue. And I think this somewhat artificial separation um, is, is uh, of the past now. And we, we see this notion much more strongly, whether, again, it's about Russia, but also whether it's about China and the question of de-risking and reducing critical vulnerabilities uh, in different economic sectors. So this is, of course, on the one hand, a result of the war, uh, the Russian war against Ukraine, but it's also uh, a learning from the pandemic, I would say. 
can you can you say uh, one or two words uh, uh, about China? Because I know that there was a big debate recently about this. To what extent should be geostrategic? To what extent should be geoeconomic? How not to sort of repeat the same mistakes as were uh, with with Russia in the past? Do you think it's a significant shift? And how would let's say uh, how would Germany uh, fall on this issue? More on, let's say, Macron or von der Leyen when it comes to this famous their recent visit to, to China? Well, um, I'm not a China expert, but what the national security strategy, I think the shift is more, more gradual than, than some people um, here in Germany or maybe also some partners would have wanted, notably the US. Uh, but what you can see uh, in the strategy is, you know, you have this triptych uh, that also is used a lot in, in the European Union, so that China is a cooperation partner, it's an economic competitor and a strategic rival. And what you see, um, the shift that you see in the national security strategy is, is this notion that, um, that it actually emphasizes strategic rivalry. Uh, and, and then the follow-up, um, or basically after the national security strategy, we also saw a China strategy, uh, and it's quite strong on um, seeking a European approach towards China and towards this idea of de-risking. Again, if you, if you look into the text and perhaps into previous drafts, um, also this European dimension um, of stating, for example, earlier drafts stated, I think, um, that, you know, there should always be considered some kind of European presence uh, during visits. And this was then later adapted to, you know, should be considered or something like this. So I think it's, it's maybe a gradual shift. Uh, and I think also this notion of de-risking uh, is interesting because in the end, it always depends on what this means in practice. You know, de-risking sounds very good. It's, it's a notion also used by, by von der Leyen. Uh, but, but what the de-risking to what extent and what fields and, and how much uh, that I think to an extent we will still, still see in the implementation phase. You said that perhaps rightly so, the strategic autonomy is not really the talk of the day, but enlargement, at least to some extent, is. And perhaps this is one of the steps for which would allow Europe to be more strategic, uh, not necessarily autonomous, but from US, but at least be more strategic as, as a political entity. How do you approach towards the enlargement change in Germany? Germany was the, the key country in terms of the previous. Uh, big enlargement 2004-2007. How the war changed the, the approach towards Ukraine and how the, the issue is seen also in, in connection to the Western Balkans and Moldova? Well, I think, you know, Germany, I think, has, has always been a, a proponent of, of enlargement to the Western Balkans. I mean, we have the process that are ongoing. As regarding Ukraine and Moldova, I remember that uh, after the um, start of the invasion, there was still quite a lot of hesitancy here in Berlin. Uh, and I was actually surprised to an extent how quickly this shifted uh, then to, to actually uh, having this, this common messaging at the European level um, towards uh, grant, granting it uh, uh, this, the candidate status. Um, I think there has been a change in the perspective on enlargement uh, a little bit across the board in Europe, and Germany is also part of it, seeing enlargement much more from a geopolitical, from a strategic perspective. But I think at the same time, um, there's also a keen awareness uh, here in Germany about um, the, the, the internal side of enlargement, about the need to prepare 
the European uh, Union for further enlargement. And the keyword often mentioned here is the absorption capacity. Uh, and this really boils down to, to a few uh, key questions, for example, the EU budget. Uh, and we we all know that if if all of these countries, but also in particular Ukraine, would join the European Union, we would have a, a very large new member state uh, with which is relatively poor, has a huge agricultural sector, and this uh, accession and accession of Ukraine would of course lead um, to to a change of the balance sheet regarding uh, net payers and net recipients. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect is also that uh, is also prominent and always linked to the enlargement debate also here in Germany is the question, you know, how do we prepare for a larger union? How do we adapt decision-making procedures? Do we need to move away from qualified, uh, from, from unanimity voting in foreign policy and tax policy? Um, so these questions and also eventually the security question. So if you imagine at the moment we have an accession perspective to the European Union, but we don't have a very clear cut accession perspective to NATO. So what if Ukraine um, joins the European Union, but not NATO? And what does that mean for the mutual assistance clause in the EU's treaties? So a lot of these questions are linked. And that's why we hear also from the German side, also together with the French, and we need to combine these two issues. We need to combine enlargement debate with a debate on the reform of the European Union. And that's why, for example, we are also seeing at the moment uh, a Franco-German expert group actually working on this connection uh, to, to make, to propose some, some concrete steps. Right. It would be very interesting to see if Germany would sort of follow the French way of the smaller coalition moving faster, Europe of different speeds. I think that would be one of the solutions for big treaty changes, uh, which might be necessary. Um, so this is uh, perhaps a key question also for the internal working of the of the EU. Uh, to to sort of uh, close on the on the on the discussion, mm, the I, I'm very curious how you see the the, the future of the. Mm, of the way that Berlin sees the common def defense and foreign policy, and also in the connection to what population thinks, because I know that in the Munich Security Conference you've been on the Zeitwende on tour. Um, so how the population sees this this change, and and uh, we know that not always uh, everything that Scholz did was popular among all the. Uh, well, coalition members, but also the population is a difficult balancing act that he has to uh, has to do. So, w w what are the lessons from the from the from the store, and what does population think? Because I think in the in the end, is is going to define the choices that uh, this chancellor or any other chancellor will, will have for the foreign and defense policy. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think, uh, as I said earlier, we have seen sometimes on certain questions, especially on the delivery of heavy weapons, we have seen um, polls that showed a little bit of divided uh, public. We will also see more divisions, I think, in the future, for example, the question of defense spending, because the special fund for defense um, will uh, not last forever. Uh, and it actually will only uh, we will only be able to reach the two percent with it until 2026. Already in 2027, the question is up for debate again. Uh, and you know, at, at this moment, especially in the beginning of of the Russian invasion, of course, you have a lot of support. You also have uh, support from the population. But the question is, will that still 
be there and when you have other competing priorities coming in, such as spending for infrastructure, for social projects and so on. So this is why I think um, it's extremely important to bring the population into the debate. I think we have a lot of catching up to do on this dimension in Germany because in the past, you know, politicians often uh, refrained from from picking a big debate on security policy because it was also not very popular. Um, it's, it's very different here, for example, than in other countries such as France, where, you know, if, if a president um, actually acts like a crisis manager abroad, uh, he, he you know, gets a boost in his popularity ratings. So here it's not the case. And so to a large extent, the debate has been has been held uh, too much, I think, behind closed doors. And this is why why initiatives such as, as the Zeitenwende on Tour campaign are so important. So what we really do is we bring politicians, we bring decision makers into the different Bundesländer and also really to the more remote places uh, and invite uh, regular citizens to actually ask whatever questions um, they have and to, to enter a dialogue, uh, an interactive dialogue um, on the Zeitenwende. And, and I think it's important both ways. It's important uh, because you learn what, what citizens are really concerned about. And, and then, of course, you can also respond and explain certain decisions. And I think this is something that has to happen much more because um, what we are seeing in Germany since, since last year is really a very important shift in its, in its strategic culture. And, and this shift can only last when you actually take along uh, citizens with you. And just perhaps to really, really close the, how do you see the, let's say, the future of the Zeitlander? Do you think it's something that's going to last? Do you think that that might be the pushback that would, you know, AFD going up in the polls? Or do you think that there is any way in which this shift might be too much for, for Germany? Or do you think this is like a one-way ticket and now Germany sort of has to find a new strategic culture it's a question of time. I think a lot of people don't appreciate how complex it is in the federal states with a strong uh, sort of uh, breaks, you know, in a country, especially like Poland, with uh, suffering from rule of law problem. I think it's something to be appreciated. It might take longer than, uh, let's say, in France or US. So do, do you think it's, it's going to last? Do you think that Germany will sort of take this strategic, political, geopolitical role in the EU? Or do you think it might be something that just because of the of the invasion but let's say if there is uh, a ceasefire and one in two or three years time we might sort of come back to the status quo answer as it was before how how do you think it is going to be the future of settlement i mean i think uh, i think there has been a notable shift uh, there has been a shift in strategy and there has been a kind of medium-term shift in spending as well and and of course a programmatic shift uh, in, in many of the German uh, parties. But I think you are right when you say that um, a lot will also depend on, on what happens in Ukraine uh, and, and how, how the war proceeds uh, and whether and when there will be a ceasefire. Uh, and, and, and that will, of course, then also impact um, how present the issue will be in, for example, in German use, and that will again impact threat perceptions among the German population. So I think that's a key factor. 
Uh, and another key factor, I think, is also really a political one. So what we are seeing at the moment uh, is a very important rise of Germany's far-right party, Alternative for Germany. And this is not necessarily directly related to the war. The reasons are uh, mostly um, immigration, which has been a, a key topic for, for the party, but also climate issues. But still, you have now a force that uh, is uh, in polls um, above 20% in Eastern German states, even higher. And this political party has a very different approach, a much more Russia-friendly approach than, let's say, um, the more centrist parties. And uh, we will see this can only be a, a sort of a moment uh, in time uh, and, and things can, can change, of course, until the next election. But this, I think, is also an important factor to consider how Zeitenwende uh, no, will, will be contested at the domestic level. Uh, and I think, I think uh, that will also shape policy to a certain extent. Certainly, it's, it's very fascinating the way that we can discuss issues that will be completely no-go two years ago. And I think from the perspective of the Eastern European Union members, it's, it's, it's really a good thing, a good sign, and a potential for a much closer cooperation on those foreign policy issues than the past, only if the governments were uh, ready to, to do this. But this is mostly, unfortunately, the, the Polish and perhaps Hungarian problem, not, not really a German problem in this case. Um, Nicole Kenick, Munich Security Conference, thank you so much for, for, for being with us today. Thank you, Leszek. That's all for today uh, from me uh, and Libra Europe. Uh, please tune in for Ricardo next week. Until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.